Hello, all. Thank you very much for coming. Good evening. Um, we're really, really pleased to be back in Phoenix, and we're particularly pleased to be back in the beautiful Heard Museum. Uh, my name is Gregory Rodriguez. I'm the founder and publisher of Socolo Public Square. We are a proud affiliate of Arizona State University. We are an ideas exchange that connects people to ideas and to each other. Essentially, that means that we provide free, really smart events to really smart people. Um, and then we offer them wine afterwards so they can talk to each other and with the evening's guests. Woohoo is exactly right. That was the, the, um, and we also publish daily, and we publish journalism, the smartest journalism in the Southwest that we syndicate to 178 outlets throughout the country and the world, including the Washington Post, uh, uh, Time.com, Smithsonian, and USA Today. Check us out at SokoloPublicSquare.org. Um, we also invite you to check out a site that we launched yesterday uh, in association with the Smithsonian Institution. It's called What It Means to Be American. It's a big question and there are many, many answers. It's a multi-platform, multimedia national conversation that we'll be hosting. And we invite you to check out our site. We will be doing a big event, launch event here at the Phoenix, here at the Herd in January, featuring uh, the founder of uh, the Girl Scouts of America, not the founder, the president of the Girl Scouts of America and Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, on, on the topic of women in the West. Um, uh, you can also become a fan of Sokolo on Facebook and find us on Twitter at, at the public square. And if you're tweeting tonight, we'll be using the hashtag synthetic life. If you haven't already, please silence your cell phones. Um, and what I forgot to, uh, well, and again, after tonight's program is finished, I hope you'll all join us in the courtyard for a cup of wine or, 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 uh, or water. Um, Changing Hands, our favorite local bookstore, will be here selling copies of Craig Venter's book, Life at the Speed of Light, From the Double Helix to the Dawn of Digital Life. Uh, and now it's my great pleasure um, to introduce my boss, uh, Mr. Michael Crow, Dr. Michael Crow, ASU president, Michael Crow became the 16th president of Arizona State University in 2002. Time Magazine has called him one of the nation's 10 best college presidents. Previously, he was executive vice provost and a professor of science and technology policy at Columbia University. He is the author of books and articles relating to the design and analysis of knowledge enterprises, technology transfer, sustainable development, and science and technology po policy. Please give a very warm welcome to ASU president, Michael Crow. Nice. So uh, thank you, uh, Gregory. What we're going to do uh, this evening is there's not going to be anything formal between uh, Craig and me. We're going to get out of here and talk. Uh, but uh, I, wanted, I want you to know who's coming out to uh, uh, have this conversation with me. So obviously, Craig Venter, as you can see. Uh, but, but what is Craig? Craig is um, a very unusual person in the following sense. So he's He's scientist, dreamer, entrepreneur, inventor, troublemaker. Uh, he's many, many kinds of things. And so I'm going to introduce uh, Craig now and just walk through some questions with him where you'll get to know him a little bit better. So uh, with no further uh, introduction, uh, Craig Venter. So Craig, how are you doing? Great to be here. So, uh, so I was just I was just talking with friends. Craig. So, so Craig, uh, long ago, took his uh, Navy corpsman training at the Balboa Naval Hospital in the old pink stucco building that happens to be the building I was born in uh, when my parents ran away as teenagers and decided to get pregnant. 
Uh, and <laughs> and my, had to pay for the delivery somewhere, so why not join the Navy? And, uh, <laughs> and then here I am. Uh, and so, uh, Craig, how, how do you go from Navy corpsman to a guy who says, listen, you know, once we understand the biological system that we are all a product of and that, the, that we all live within, how do you go from Navy corpsman to a guy building scientific institutes that say we're going to be able to create life? Human beings are going to be able to synthesize and create living, reproducible organisms by something other than animal or plant breeding, which we actually know how to do. How do you go from that? Well, you might imagine it wasn't a linear route. <laughs> you didn't go from coming back from Vietnam and just move straight into running a world-class research institute? No, in fact, uh, it was probably one of the most important decisions, but also the toughest ones of, uh, you know, I, I was in a special privileged position in, in the Navy. Uh, there was a shortage of physicians during the war, and uh, I was like a sponge. I learned things very quickly, and uh, without liability insurance issues, uh, you could do whatever your skill set was in the Navy. So I, as a 20-year-old uh, a in Balboa Hospital, I was teaching interns and residents how to do spinal taps and liver biopsies and things like that. And by the time I got to Vietnam, I was doing major surgery. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty active uh, lifespan uh, uh, there where I learned knowledge was critical. The more knowledge I had, the better I could perform and the more lives I could save. Yeah. But to get back to that same point I was at as a 21-year-old of the Navy, mm -hmm. I had to spend 15 or more years in school and training to get back to that point, because uh, as you know, I was a total goof off uh, before then. Um, yeah, you were a surfer bum or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I, I left the San Francisco Bay Area to take up a surfing career and got drafted off my surfboard. You almost and, came to ASU. And I, I, I was, uh, <laughs> back when they had no standards, I was offered a scholarship <laughs> here. <laughs> We had standards then. Well, it was about swimming you did. They were, uh, I, I was a good swimmer. I, you know, I, I, I have an, an American record for a while, things like that. But, yep. uh, so I was offered a swimming scholarship out of high school, even though I was between a D minus and an F from graduating from, from high school. And it was actually an Arizonan that uh, saved me. It was Barry Goldwater. Yes, he saved many. I knew my, uh, my government teacher was a right-wing Republican so I wrote an essay for the final grade in the class on why I thought Barry Goldwater should be president, uh, even though I didn't think he should have been. Yeah. Uh, uh, but the teacher loved it, and so instead of flunking me, I got a D minus, and I graduated from high school. Perfect. <laughs> so what? Do you, so so what good do you, ties to Arizona. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think? So you're sitting there, and you're learning. You're learning. Uh, biology and medicine and human anatomy and everything in, in, you know, in, a, in an unbelievable classroom of the Navy and, and the war. And were you, you think you were already attracted to biology or to medicine? And when, when did that shift? Well, I was clearly focused on medicine. And uh, in fact, I was the, uh, the medic for a orphanage at a small village in Vietnam. You know, I loved it. It was 
using your knowledge, you change people's lives very directly. So my plan uh, was to see if I could survive school, and if I, my plan was to go to medical school and yeah. maybe go back to third world medicine. Yeah. And it was actually, I had to start at a community college um, and then transfer it to UC San Diego. But there I was introduced to some of the top scientists in the world. Uh, they, so when, when did something click? What, do you remember at all when it clicked for you? It, it clicked. Um, I made a, a discovery as an undergraduate about how adrenaline worked. Yeah. And you know, my theory is people study things they're related to. I'm an adrenaline junkie. Right. So I studied he how had adrenaline like 14 worked. 14 Red Bulls just before we came in. <laughs> to wash down the coffee and. <laughs> Uh, and uh, it, it was like the most thrilling thing I'd done. And I thought, wow, this science stuff is pretty cool. You yeah. ask a question about how things work, yeah. you get an answer, and people think you're a genius. I mean, so this that is, was the, you were working on something, it, yeah, it, right. It, it totally switched. So right. I published my uh, first paper in PNAS as, a, yeah. a, as an undergraduate at UC. And, proceedings uh, of the National Academy of Sciences, yeah. for those of you that don't know what that PNAS yeah. is. And, you know, so I was hooked and just started uh, fundamentally working in science. But there's a great book I read because uh, in my scientific lineage, I worked with Nate Kaplan, who yeah. had trained uh, with Fritz Lippmann, the guy who just, for biologists, discovered the high energy bond in right. ATP. And uh, he worked with Otto Meyerhoff, you know, so in a very short lineage of three people, I went back to the earliest discoveries in biochemistry. Mm -hmm. Lippmann wrote a book, The Wanderings of a Biochemist, how you know, people think there's a nice linear route. You, you, you know, age six, you're sure you're going to be a scientist, and therefore you yep. become one, and you know, people get bored with everything you have to say. But um, he showed that his route was right. you know, all over the place. Which is reality, right? Which is reality. So um, I went from studying adrenaline receptors to try and uh, sequencing a gene associated with this, you could not get money from NIH for molecular biology unless you trained with a famous molecular biologist. So um, when so I'm- an old, At that time, an old boys club. It was totally an old boys club. Yeah. And uh, so when I moved to NIH, I didn't have to write grants anymore. I shut down what my lab was doing mm -hmm. and we spent a year and taught ourselves molecular biology. Mm -hmm. Now I'm a famous molecular biologist, so I can, I can say I trained with a famous molecular biologist. Yeah, perfect. But, but I taught myself molecular biology. And, but once we published papers, then it, it was all okay. Yeah. Um, but it, it gave the opportunity to just to try new things. And one thing yeah. just led to another of, uh, um, as, soon as, as soon as we uh, sequenced the first genome in 1995 and sequenced the second one that year, it was comparing the two we just ask questions. There must be a simpler operating system for life, mm -hmm. and that we should be able to define it. Yes. And if you could define the minimal operating system, then you could add to it right. and basically recapitulate evolution. Right. It turns out, uh, those of you who have looked at my book, these things aren't novel. You know, every time you think you've got a new idea, all you have to do is look back in history. A Frenchman wrote a book in 1900 on uh, of course there would be synthetic life. Yeah. And when it works and people come up with the first synthetic life, no, nobody should be surprised or amazed because it's so obvious. Well, you, you highlight this quote in your book by Schrodinger. Yeah. And, and, and I put in the first question, but you answered it. Yeah. He said it would eventually be answered, but you and others answered it. So, so he understood then, back to this, uh, this uh, question and this book itself, yeah. 
so, so from the outset, is that what you were trying to answer? Or is that too big? No, that's exactly what we're trying to answer. And could we define it in molecular it's up here terms? For you guys too. Um, so, uh, you know, Schrodinger's book had a big influence on me as a scientist. Cause yeah, this is a book, 1944, that's an unbelievable read if you haven't had a chance to read it. In fact, it. it was right before the transition of key knowledge. So, uh, Schrodinger, because he was getting information from the top biologist at the time, were sure that proteins were the genetic material. And the thinking was DNA was just simple polymer. It couldn't possibly contain all our genetic information. Meaning it was just a chemical of some type, it, it like a plastic. Some, like or, a support right. uh, structure. A resin in a tree or yeah, something like exactly. that. Exactly. Right. Right. And it was actually in 1944 when the key experiments were done proving that DNA was in fact the genetic material. But Schrodinger's book had already come out. Yeah. But the key thing that he had done was defined in physical terms. So he was a physicist. Uh, people know Schrodinger's equation and Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. Um, he tried to see if life obeyed the principles of physics. Right. And actually ignored his own reasoning and logic. He came up with the metaphor that actually uh, the genetic material could be as simple as the Morse code, yeah. just a binary a, a set of numbers, but assume then it had just be some branch arm off the proteins that got there. Yeah. You know, so his book is famous because he reasoned his way through, in fact, to describe what was going to come out when uh, Watson and Crick came up with the model for the structure of DNA. Right. Um, and that it was close to a binary code, it was yeah. actually a four letter code. Right. But we've now shown that we can interchange the digital code, the ones and zeros, with the four-letter code of DNA, and we can interchange it pretty regularly. So he asks this question. He poses this question. He says, eventually, yep. chemistry and physics will give you the tools to be able to get to this code. And then, and then with this code, the work that you did and the team that you were a part of, that you led, that you uh, drove forward in 2010, are we now at a point that we could only conceptualize before and your efforts then have brought us to this unique point in history? I mean, obviously standing on the shoulders of many yeah. people that came before you. I mean, are we at a unique point relative to what is life and our understanding of it? So, so it depends on which field you ask, right? Molecular biology has sort of proceeded on the premise that DNA was in fact the genetic material and did contain all the information. But even amongst these, and I, I describe them in, in, in my book, is, is the new neo-creationist um, uh, or um, uh, thinking that it can't be as simple as biological chemicals. There, there has to be this magic mm -hmm. dust or something that, mm -hmm. that creates life. Mm -hmm. So I think what our experiment did of chemically making the entire chromosome and booting it up and showing that every molecule in the cell derived from that linear code sort of proves that you know, DNA is our software. Mm -hmm. So every species on this planet is a DNA software-driven system. And Which would then say that digital biology or something computational something is possible. Well, because we can move from the digital world to the DNA world and back, and, and this has huge implications. Um, that's where life at the speed of light comes from, because we showed right. that we can actually send biology through the internet. 
at Synthetic Genomics, we have the first digital biological converter. So talk, talk about your different worlds. So talk about your institute and your company. Okay. And, and then talk about why you set up two versus one and how you work differently in each of them. So I, uh, the Venture Institute is a not-for-profit institute that basically started in uh, 1992. Um, that was the other big risk that I took. So uh, you know, I had a permanent position at NIH. I had a multi-million dollar budget each year. I didn't now have you, to do you much. You spent how many, how many minutes per year did you have to justify your yeah, budget? Yeah, it was 15 to 30 minutes each year. And, <laughs> you know, um, Don't we all wish for that? Yeah. 15 to 30 minutes, here's $5 million. <laughs> but, but I actually, I, I got very smart and I worked out how the federal system worked and I tripled my budget usually in the last two hours of the year yeah. because there was always this leftover yeah. cal calendar year money. Right. And so I started filling my drawer with purchase requisitions yeah. for tens of millions of dollars worth of equipment each year. Yes. And nobody wanted to let the money go back, so they learned I was always ready. So they, so they Craig wanted, Craig got. They, they would come to me, and the requisitions went through, and I could buy anything. Then uh, you left that largesse. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Why did you do that to create this institute? Well, it, it's actually hard in the government to not be breaking at least five laws a minute of some kind. Uh, the, the biggest thing is you couldn't take a pen or a coffee cup from a vendor who came in and just truly silly things. And I'll take the water back. Yeah. <laughs> you can have the uh, container. Um, and, uh, you know, based on this method I developed for finding human genes, there was a lot of potential for it going much faster and much further. So you wanted to go more quickly, you wanted to be not held back, so you start this institute, yeah. and then you can move in your own pace and in your own way. That was the plan. And then what about the company or companies? So there was a company started at the, the time of the Institute uh, called Human Genome Sciences, and uh, the theory was... It was called uh, the thorn in the side? It, it was. Um, you know, I was guaranteed $70 million, but then they formed this company, and they were supposed to give it to me, and, uh, you know, they didn't like having that obligation on their books. So uh, it got messy for a while. But yeah. it, it, it's, it's actually worked well, because if you do good independent science that's really pushing the boundaries, mm -hmm. um, it's not impossible to find really good support for yeah. it. And so on the not-for-profit side, you were doing more fundamental searching and discovery? Yeah, and that's where we did the first genome in 1995. Right. And, and then the company, you were trying to move fast. Yeah. You had investors, people that wanted to see if we could get something out of this. Well, we wanted to uh, use this method for the human genome, but it was this mammoth, uh, multi-billion dollar federal program that wanted to move in a linear fashion. And our method relied on mathematics and computing and uh, shotgun sequencing where we'd use automatic sequencers to generate a lot of data. Uh, it's actually a funny story. Uh, we couldn't get uh, federal money, but I kept getting these calls from this guy who, who I actually knew, but he, he was at Applied Biosystems. He said, uh, we want to give you $300 million to sequence the human genome using uh, your method and our new instrument. And I just thought this guy was a crack and I kept hanging up on him. Yes. Um, was he? And he, he actually came out to see me and said they were real and wanted me to go out and see it. So, you know, I, I was given $300 million of startup money to start in that form, Solera Genomics, yes. to sequence the human genome. And, Instead of being a 15-year program, we did it in nine months for about $100 million wow. uh, and created a Which lot of enemies for me. There's different ways to do science. 
There's uh, technology development. You know, the physicists learned how to get together a long time ago. I, I, it's it's not clear why. You know, we somebody should study. Is it a mindset of physicists? You know, or, or the, there's just not so much to discover because it's so simple. More so than uh, the bio. most people. Yeah. No, no, no. So interestingly, so it's it's very interesting. So so uh, a person I think that you admire, uh, Feynman. Yep. Uh, so you mentioned Feynman in your book, and uh, Richard Feynman was a Nobel Prize winning physicist. I've got a slide in about him later. So uh, he went and tinkered in biology for a while after he'd already uh, been a lot a of physicists do. They, yeah, but then he yeah. thought biology was trivial, yeah. and he dismissed it as boring a little bit. Uh, and That's that, how I am with physics. Yeah, but the, the interesting thing, though, <laughs> is, that, is that physics has uh, fewer unknowns and yeah. simpler math equations and... Uh, less parameters and, and fewer and, variables. Yeah, fewer variables. So most people think that 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 physics is simpler when in fact perhaps it's the root yeah. of understanding everything, therefore critically important. Yeah. But then it's it's the enabler as opposed to it in and of itself. Yeah, as Schrodinger pointed out, biology would not function without physics working properly. Right. Um, but biology has a lot more. Um, more degrees of freedom and elements to try and work out, and we're still trying to work out how yeah. it works. And now, is it, is it anything like this? Well, we, we are DNA software-driven machines. We um, are DNA software-driven machines, and so how does that manifest itself? Well, it, it manifests itself in simple organisms in a very direct fashion, uh, and we're in the process of finding out how it affects us directly. So. Uh, 14 years ago, it cost $100 million, took us nine months. I had two giant buildings devoted to sequencing the first human genome. Mm -hmm. And now we have these new instruments about the size of this table. Uh, we have 20 of them. Uh, we can do 40 to 80,000 genomes a year with these small instruments mm -hmm. uh, for around $1,000 each. Mm -hmm. And so we're scaling up to do about 100,000 or so a year. We're trying to get between one and four million genomes by 2020. So obviously we have to... And what do you think, what will we know when we have that that we don't know now? We will know precisely within the next decade what's nature and what's nurture. We can measure what's nature. We can't measure other than by difference uh, what's the environment. And it's gonna have a lot of implications for society. Um, I, I don't think as a species we're so ready. I wasn't sure when my dad used to say, I'm going to whip your ass over this, uh, whether that was nature or nurture, because yeah. <laughs> uh, one way or the other, it was one of them. It was them. probably his nature, but it was your nurture. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, I got that feeling. Yeah. But we're going to learn that, uh, and, and uh, there's amazing implications. Uh, so there's uh, implications relative to human longevity. There's implications relative to uh, understanding how to improve, repair, enhance, lots of things, right? Well, it's going to turn into a preventative medicine paradigm. But, um, you know, just some examples from uh, we're, we're going to be doing quantitative PET MRI, so we're, we actually can do an MRI of your brain and get exact volumes of the different brain regions. You don't mean pet as in dog or cat, you Not, mean no. uh, pet as in instrument emission. Uh, and uh, we're going to do that, layer that information on with comprehensive phenotype information, yep. 
including the microbiome, all the chemicals. Right. Uh, so what, translate that for some of the folks. What, what will that enable? It, it will give us the most comprehensive view of any one of us as a human. So yeah. measuring all the parameters we can. And, and some of these are pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, on one of the reasons I hated school as a kid, uh, public schools in California, it was a rote memorization cycle. Yes. And I hated, I hated that also. I hated just, you know, doing it. It seemed wrong. It seemed boring. But then I found out I have an anatomical reason for it. So uh, looking for evidence for uh, uh, future dementia, we can now measure tiny changes in as little as three months in somebody's yeah. brain. But my hippocampus, which is associated with uh, a short-term memory, is only in the, uh, the three percentile uh, yeah. for range. Knowing that now, it's totally obvious why I hated yeah. rote memorization. Yeah. Uh, so your, your, your biological structure came out enhanced in some things, not enhanced in other uh, things. That's right. right. So yeah. in fact... And we're all different. Each person is unique. Yeah. yeah. We're all, we're all going to have different, but they're going to be measurable and they're yeah. going to be quantitative. Yeah. And so I had to comp you know, come up with reasoning and integration of information abilities right. in, instead of rote memorization. And it, it's a challenge. My uh, first wife had a photographic memory. We went through some classes together. She could go through and just look up the pages in the text, read down in her brain, and look up the answer. But six months later, she couldn't do that. Right. I had to understand the principles, so I understood those and still do. Mm -hmm. But the m rote memorization, actually, it's kind of a false aid for yeah, people. And right. it, it doesn't work, as you know, for an education also paradigm. It shows differences in how we learn. They, yeah. We probably each learn differently. Now, this is a Nobel laureate here, Herbert Simon, who won the Nobel Prize in economics, even though he wasn't an economist. He was a political scientist. And he had this book called Sciences of the Artificial, where he really spent a lot of time talking about what he called the natural sciences, which is what we're trying to understand about nature and how it works, and that's what you've been focusing on. But you're now delving into the realm of what he called design science, which is what do we do with what we know? And it was this interface between these two sciences that, that one could speculate that, that as, we, as we further enhance our understanding of the biological design system that we have, we're gonna close this gap giving us, giving, between natural science and design science, that we're gonna be able to move from the natural sciences, he also called the design sciences, the sciences of the artificial. And what he meant by that was us now saying, well, let's do this or let's do that or let's adjust this or let's adjust that. And so what's your notion about, about design sciences and design outcomes? Well, a while ago I tweeted just because I created synthetic life doesn't make me a creationist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's probably very true. <laughs> uh, and it will be overwhelmingly tempting for humanity to refrain from using this knowledge uh, to modify our species. Mm -hmm. uh, even at the 15 years ago, at the start of the Human Genome Project, polls were taken of the public, and a vast majority said if they could select traits of their children, they would do it. Mm -hmm. So... But they're thinking like hair color. You know, or uh, once uh, it became clear that you could measure between sprinter and long distance muscle types, right. 
uh, people wanted to get those tests right, right away for selection. Right. You know, the, the trouble is in places, and the, the reason it just got banned in China to do genetic testing, it's used primarily for sex selection. Yeah, right. Uh, and for who will be born and who won't be, right? Yeah. In, in, in India, they had the same problem with uh, ultrasound. It was used for sex selection. So, but we, as people in the society, will select whatever is important to us. And those societies... We'll design what we want to design. We'll design or select for it. Um, all of biology re relies on selection. Uh, whether it's a genetic test or ultrasound to find out whether it's a male or female, and then you abort one, that's selection. That's just like evolutionary selection. Yeah. Um, but if we can change, for example, uh, lethal diseases that are like uh, just totally durable degenerative diseases, if we could eliminate those, right. that's not unreasonable to do. Right. Some people talk Rather about- Rather than just treat them, we can now eliminate them. Well, because you can't even treat them because right. it's the wiring of the brain and once it's wired, you can't go back and right. rewire it. Right. So there's some things that just won't be treatable. Yeah. They'll be preventable, right. uh, but they won't be treatable. Right. Uh, we want to, uh, obviously, you know, it makes sense to eliminate those. Some people say, well, manic depression is a pretty bad disease. Yeah. Well, let's eliminate that. But Kay Jamison, who was a, also a manic depression, wrote a book that uh, examining most breakthroughs in history most creative people are some degree of uh, manic depressants. Hmm. So if you cure that disease genetically, you could wipe out uh, uh, creativity of humanity. So, yeah. you know, we need to do this based on knowledge, and I think we're a long way from having that knowledge, uh, so we're not advocating any of these things in the near future. So I've seen you mention more than once and heard you say once before that, that uh, there's a lot of people that have speculated about the future through science fiction or fiction. And I think in your later, later, latest book, you mentioned Aerosmith as yeah. one, of the, one of the books uh, from the 1920s that you were talking about the, the disease outcomes and the biology uh, stuff that was going on in that book. Most science fiction that you read is um, uh, negative. Mm -hmm. It's a technology run amok. Yeah. It's, you know, that guy, Craig Venter, you know, he did something and now we all have three eyes or whatever. Uh, and so, and so but, what, what do you, but what do you think is, the, what, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think is the reason that most of it's negative? So, it, you know, it's a theme that's been very popular in almost every culture. Uh, you know, Mary Shelley really captured this. Frankenstein. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, early on with all the vivisection that was going on. And Who remembers Frankenstein? They don't show that movie as much as they used to yeah. for the younger kids. But. It's a much better book. You should really... You take it. dead people and yeah. sew them together and then <laughs> yeah. they walk. It's not so far-fetched now, but it's... Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, those were the themes that have been very common. You know, she just picked up on that theme and, yeah. and, and wrote a great story around it. So, so if, if somebody said to you, Listen, you, you, you're going to sit on this desk. You're going to be on your boat for three months. I want you to write a science fiction novel uh, that's really interesting and compelling. And don't say you can't write it. We'd find somebody to jazz it up. But mm -hmm. what would be the central theme of your science fiction? So uh, I, I would talk about criminality in the future because now we have all these things with DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, my genome's been on the Internet for about 15 years now. Uh, there's a company uh, that sells uh, 
my cells, even some of my stem cells, they use those because my genome's out there. So I could, in theory, be uh, doing 50 crimes simultaneously around the world. Somebody's using your with stuff. With implanted yeah. DNA evidence. Right. Right? Yeah. And so your novel would go that direction. It's one notion. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, so there's another science fiction guy named Neil Stevenson who has that kind of stuff going on, but then you have nano devices that have been implanted in your bloodstream, so when the judge tracks you down, they just push a button in your office and your vascular system in your brain explodes, and so then you're, you're terminated. And so... Um, I'm trying to avoid those. Yeah. Well, I would just add that part, so... <laughs> so, uh, so this is one of my yeah, favorite... Yeah, but it would have been wrong because it was not my actual crime. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this is one of my favorite, favorite buildings in Paris. Yeah. My, my wife's uh, mother's family is from Paris, and... So I go to this Pantheon, and, and, and it's just kind of a cool building, but it's who's in it that's uh, really particularly uh, cool for me. And this, this particular person, yeah. uh, Descartes, uh, and I think, therefore, I am is one of the most profound statements that a human being has made or a philosopher has made on behalf of all of us, and therefore, you all know many people who are not. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so uh, they're, not, they're not even an I. Uh, and so, what, what does this mean to you? I think, therefore, I am. Now, obviously, I mean, you're, you're involved in science that's at the level that, you know, 500 years from now, chances are in some history book there's going to be a picture and it's going to be yours. You did this, and this led to this, and this led to this. And that's, to get in a book 500 years after you're dead, that's not easy. And so, but, but... I can't wait. Yes, right. <laughs> but I think, therefore, I am. And then if we think, therefore, we should be able to solve all these unknowns. If you think you can solve any unknown, if you think and you develop, as we have, the methods, the techniques, the tools, the means, the drive, the ambition, all these things, I think, therefore, I am. And therefore, if I am, I can do what? Well... We're, the name of the new company is Human Longevity. We're trying to understand... Now this is, how many companies have you had? This is... This, well, there's two. There's synthetic genomics and, and human longevity right, right. now. So, right now, but you've had yeah, a couple before that. So. Yeah. Um, and so we're trying to understand our human software for preventative medicine, for predicting, right. uh, you know, trying to truly understand what is coded in our nature and what's yeah. environmental. And, because we're unusual species in, in that we are genetically programmed well, that's an interesting point. We're to be an adaptive. Un, we're an unusual species in that we're genetically programmed to be adaptive. And I think adaptability is, in fact, the key human trait. Mm -hmm. That is, we adapt through making tools. We adapt by building theories. We adapt by building assumptions. From those theories, we move. This is the key thing that makes us human. It's really what Descartes... But we're programmed to do that. But we're programmed to do that, yeah. absolutely, and then yeah. empowered to do that. Yeah. So what does that, what does that mean then, like yeah. longevity? So now we are thinking, we're thinking, really, I'd like to not make it to 80, I'd like yeah. to make it to 100. Yeah, or maybe we'll be here in 500 years and we'll be writing the textbooks, that's why our pictures will be in them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there's no a priori reason that biological systems have to wear out. Right. Um, all species sort of evolved on a reproductive Everybody's basis. Everybody's listening to this, right? Uh, no a priori reason that systems have to wear out that yeah. are biological. Well, and we 
find that we can renew them. Stem cells do create a certain renewal, um, you know, correcting errors in the genetic code. Yeah. Basically, it's accumulation of errors in copying proteins. Yeah. You know, it's just all these errors accumulate until, you know, it doesn't work anymore. Right. But the DNA repair systems, the trafficking things that get rid of wrongly produced proteins, they're all part of the system that we are now understanding that program and those processes, mm -hmm. that there's no reason to think that there's any absolute finite limit on human life. Yeah. Um, our goal is not just to prolong human life. We're right. trying to solve all the mysteries we can about uh, medicine. You know, the cliche is if you don't die from heart disease or cancer, you'll die with dementia. Right. Um, we think all those can change where you have a healthy lifespan. It doesn't matter whether it's 90 or 120 in my view, it more you know, can you do it in a healthy fashion? So, so on this, this thing, which is uh, Don Stokes, uh, I was a reviewer for this book uh, a long time ago, and he wrote this book called Pasture's Quadrant. And, and up in the upper right are scientists who are quest, uh, searching for fundamental understanding, but they have a use in mind. They have a purpose like longevity or a purpose like eliminating this disease or that disease, and that, they call that Pasture's Quadrant. And then off to the left are those that just do pure basic research called their, the Bohr, Niels Bohr, the physicist at the bottom, you can't see it very well in the green, but that's Edison, which is you're looking for use, but you have no fundamental understanding. You just put electric current through different metals until you see which one lasts the longest, and then you make a light bulb from that one. And so why is it that I mean, you're the most like Pasteur here in that sense? I don't know. I, I think this diagram is fundamental bullshit. Okay. Because uh, <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah, these, these are good teaching tools, maybe, that's maybe not. But how would you draw it? How would you draw it? Well, you know, it's, it's part of a continuum. Some days we do pure basic research. Yeah. Other days it's focused towards right. an application. Some days, just to get an essay to work, it's just the rote work. You know, Edison claims he found uh, a thousand and one reasons why light bulbs don't work. So that's, that's basic understanding. So, 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 so some days, it's important. So some <laughs> yeah. days, you're, you're trying to answer some question that no one's ever answered before, fundamental research. Some days you're building a device or a machine, so you're engineering something. Some days you're wandering around lost, yeah. uh, trying to figure out where you are, right? People have always wanted to categorize themselves and other people, and there hasn't been a category or classification system uh, that's worked. Yeah. And what I've argued is that from understanding your genome and comparing it to millions of others, we will all belong to maybe 50 or 100 new unique groups. So in that sense, our model of race, species, all kinds of things will be altered as we, yep. as we uh, move. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you something about okay. my, my genome in a second, but before, okay. before I get to this, one of our chemists, Petra Frome, uh, she just developed with some others uh, a technique for uh, ultra-high-speed femtosecond time frame, femtosecond x-ray crystallography, in which she's destroying individual atoms, that's like, like a hydrogen atom inside a water molecule, and before the atom is destroyed, she sees the, the uh, photon, I mean the proton, jump into another uh, uh, structure huh? within this photosystem number one crystalline structure. Is she a physicist or a biologist? She's a chemist. 
<laughs> working with physicists, working on photosynthesis. Okay. And as far as I know, there aren't any biologists yeah. involved, uh, <laughs> as far as I know. Now, so the elegance of this structure, this is her diagram, yeah. so uh, uh, is unbelievably complex and is much more complex than the systems that you've been working with, because you've been working with things that you can get your hands around. But t just say a little bit about what does it mean for everything like this? You know, photosystems where you're getting photons from the sun working on a molecular level to create energy. Now that's actually a key part. We have a, a team of about 20 people trying to modify photosynthesis to improve the efficiency of it. And uh, we've changed a number of aspects of it. Uh, we've improved the efficiency of photosynthesis about three or four fold, but it hasn't changed the output of the cell yet. So no. it makes the cell Got more it. efficient, but it hasn't increased its biological properties, but it's a beautiful picture. I really like it. Yeah, well, she, this, she went after, this is one of the more, if not the most uh, complex yeah. crystal in nature, crystal structure in nature, and this is what she started with. Uh, and so it, it might be interesting to take a look at that. So it turns out I sent my spit into uh, 23andMe, <laughs> and inside the spit must have been tissue from my uh, cheeks and tongue or whatever. So anyway, they, they ran my, my, uh, my DNA at a you know, very rudimentary mm -hmm. level. They mm -hmm. gave me back a chromosomal uh, approximation. They gave me my haplogroup, so I'm a R1AB21F, whatever it is, yeah. so I know where my, and, I, and by the way, it correlates with my family's own um, dynamics, but quite a shocker. It's always helpful when it does. Yeah, it does. It, <laughs> yeah, well, it, it turns out. 5% of the time it doesn't, so. Well, I, believe me, I know, because it, it, tell, it tells uh, paternity uh, yes. <laughs> for children, which is very interesting. And so, um, it turns out that I'm in the 96th percentile of uh, the percent of my DNA, according to what they said to yeah. me, that comes from basically another species, yeah. a proto-human species that existed at the same time as we did. Now, the average person, at least of those that have sent their samples in, is, yeah. is, is, is less. So wh what the hell does this mean? So it's actually, it was a fascinating uh, a debate for a long time as you know, people knew that Neanderthals and modern humans probably coexisted. Yeah, but usually when two species mate, they produce a mule and it can't mate again. Uh, and, I, and I have three children, so. So, so yeah, <laughs> people argued that there was no interactions between them. And I said, look, if they coexisted, yes. I was in the Navy, you they have a Navy around. background. <laughs> if they coexisted, they mated. <laughs> You guys have ever seen the Neanderthal pictures, but so what does this mean within the within the the evidence shows it was the Neanderthal men with, with having women. sex with modern uh, humans yes. women. So they're but are they most, are are Neanderthals? They're they're a yeah. hominid, yes, but they're not Homo sapiens sapiens. Yeah. So, so what does that mean? It, well, they had some positive traits. So, uh, there's mm -hmm. some interesting stories. I was getting an honorary degree. Uh, along with President Clinton, and he uh, said that he learned from me. He was about three and a half percent Neanderthal, and it explains all he's the a, problems he's a he had. less of a man than me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, my, my wife, by the way, is not in the 96th percentile. She's in the 99th percentile. So she's even more, is she redhead? Uh, I think she dyes her hair, I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it means uh, Neanderthal traits uh, that were maintained were actually very positive, yeah. uh, selective uh, traits. Neanderthals existed for a far longer time than modern humans have so Is far. there something in the, 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 those components of an individual's DNA that's 
a design tool for us going forward. And what I yeah. mean by that is there have to be characteristics then in living humans today that are carrying this in yep. their code that others are not. And red hair is, yeah. in theory, one of them. But uh, so we are looking, we have a list of all the Neanderthal genes. And so instead of what George Church wants to do of impregnate a lady and have her have a Neanderthal baby. Yes. Um, I, I don't, you know. Who thinks that's a good idea? <laughs> All right. Uh, we can give you George's phone number if you want to do it. So it's He's a, a famous, famous yeah. scientist. Um, so instead, uh, working with Fonte Pabo, who sequenced the Neanderthal genome, yes. in our databases, we're sequencing more and more genomes. His assumption is there will be back mutations right. uh, where we see these changes from Neanderthal traits to modern human traits. And because we're phenotyping these people, we should be able to actually work out yeah. what are the modern carryover of uh, Neanderthal traits into our species. And mm -hmm. maybe it's why you're such a great college president is because it's that Neanderthal in you that allows you to I, I, I think, I think it's why I can't bang lose it out. <laughs> so you're very familiar with this picture. Yes. Now, this is what all the hubbub was about uh, four or five years ago, four, well, yeah, four and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. And so, what is this? And why blue? So uh, we had a cassette uh, so that to the genome so that when it was expressed, it turned the cells bright blue. It just made it easier uh, to detect them. So you, you gave it an instruction. Yeah. So these are the first cells that had totally uh, synthetic DNA software. Totally synthetic DNA software, uh, functioning cells. And every molecule in the cell was derived uh, from that software. So Does everybody understand that every molecule in these cells, therefore every atomic structure, yep. every relationship between every, uh, uh, every single atom was so, created through a structure yeah. that you made chemical. facilitated. Yeah. So basically we replaced the operating system in the in existing species and put in the new synthetic operating system. So what was the, little, what was the little bacteria you were playing around with? So the, uh, the original cell that we transplanted into was uh, Mycoplasma caprocolum. Mm -hmm. uh, what does that guy do normally? It, uh, you know, screws up goats occasionally. Yeah. Um, so it's out there, it's just yeah, in the, yeah. It's a common goat pathogen. Yeah. And so we removed its operating system and put in the synthetic DNA operating system. Mm -hmm. And within a short while, we ended up with these bright blue cells. Yeah. And when we interrogated them, measured every protein in there. there how were, many proteins are in one of those? There's, you know, depending on how you count, uh, uh, 5,000 maybe. Uh, there wasn't a single protein from the original cell. Not a single protein from the original when cell. When we measured antigens and other molecules, and you can just do a simple calculations from cell you division. You guys know all this stuff's going on, right? There's people out doing this. Yeah. this you know, here's, okay, everybody's got that. Anybody surprised by some of this? Yeah. Back there in the back, just somebody came in late. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the notion so, is, you, you know, it's DNA software. We're DNA yeah. software driven. You change the software and you change the species. Right. In fact, that's played a huge role in evolution. We just haven't known it because we haven't witnessed it or measured it. We can measure it in retrospect. So here's your buddy Feynman yeah. again. And he says, what I cannot create, I do not understand. We put that quote and wrote it in the DNA code uh, along with a few others. So we develop a new code to write the entire English language 
numbers and punctuations just using the four-letter code of DNA. And other people have done that with just the ASCII code. Yeah, right. But uh, as biologists, we wanted a code that would work in a living cell. And the last thing you'd want to do is uh, uh, put your name into the genome and have that turned into a bacterial toxin of some kind. <laughs> So our code puts in very frequent stop codons so you can only get tiny little peptides. You mean like Venter zombie? Yeah. So, so, so this is deeper than that also. Yes. You know, this is, he's basically saying if I can't create it, I don't fully understand it, whatever this it happens. Is, you know, there's, I'm sure, chemists here. That's been the basis of chemistry. And there's tens if not hundreds of thousands of papers that start... Uh, uh, the title of proof by synthesis. So the old way of doing, uh, discovering molecules like adrenaline, you find it, you try and work out the structure, and then you reproduce it chemically and shows it has the same properties as the natural one, and that's proof by synthesis. We did that with life, we did proof by synthesis. Right. So another physicist, but this is a guy that's written hundreds of books, yeah. and they're both fictional books, science fictional books, physics books, he wrote a book that I read in college called uh, History of Physics. It was a fantastic book. Uh, and he, he has this series of writings where he's basically throwing out these cautions about robots. But now imagine not a robot. Imagine a digitally designed biological organism either in us, on us, or around us somehow performing some set of functions that we've designed it mm -hmm. to do. What would be the rules of engagement within that? <laughs> Well, I, I, uh, I listed the four laws of, uh, that Isaac Asimov came up with right. uh, for robotics. You know, just you know, trying to see if they applied, and, and, and they, sort of, they sort of do. Um, you know, it's the same notions. Uh, we're trying to create things to help humanity, not eliminate it. Right. Uh, we don't want to have these things be created as new weapons of war. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think, uh, you know, by the way, Asimov was a uh, biologist. He was a professor of biology. At Boston University. Yeah. But I think he was trained, I mean, Lawrence, you probably know, he was trained in physics. Anyone who's good was trained in physics. Yeah, anyone. <laughs> Lawrence is a physicist. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so what are your worries? I, about any, so let's talk about, you know, human longevity, uh, human enhancement, uh, those, are, those are related to, similar to, and on the same social, social construct as medicine, mm -hmm. you know, in the sense that they're, you know, that's what doctors are attempting to yeah. extend human life with every ounce of their energy. Right. And if you can give them more tools to be able to do if that. you get a knee replacement, is that enhancement? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So we do that all the time. Yeah. It's part of things. Well, but we also uh, genetically engineer everything. Everything we eat is genetically engineered. It's... it's uh, somehow bred or modified or this or that. Uh, and yeah. so, so what, what, are, what are your worries before we turn to the audience? So th there's a new field of DYI biology where people are doing now things that were only possible in labs 20 years ago. You can do it somewhat in your kitchen sink. Yeah. You can order pieces of DNA from a number of companies and things. So uh, Ebola is very much on a lot of people's minds right now. Ebola only has eight genes. It's a very small genome. Uh, you know, some kids trying to be wise guys, you know, as everybody was at that age, only they have no tools. Yeah. They want to be the first one on their block to, you know, make a virus or something instead of just hacking a computer. Sure. 
you know, we have clubs at the university now that compete yeah. in genetic engineering yeah. contests. So making something construct. the size of Ebola is, is frighteningly trivial now. I mean, yeah. you could order those pieces. But part of the rules that got put in uh, after President Obama's Bioethics Commission worked with us and others, every company in the U.S. that makes these pieces of DNA screens against things, so nobody would make Ebola. Yeah. But there's companies in India and China and all the other kinds of other places. So it's people just doing silly things or doing things uh, by accident, not having the right training. Um, and also, you know, our society tends to very quickly trivialize things uh, and forget the ethics and the implications and the, uh, uh, in, in, in the broader impact on society because uh, it's, you know, Kardashian time or something. Yeah. So we, we, we need to be smart about these decisions. Uh, this is, this technology that we've played a role in developing is, is probably uh, going to be the most impactful technology for humanity. Right, so let's, let's just, last question from me. So, so let's say that, and it's highly likely, that this building is sitting in its exact location 50, 80, 100 years from now, decades from now. There's people sitting here on the stage and they're talking. Most of the things that you have dreamt about have occurred. Um, and uh, most of it's good, let's say, that there's a net-net, overwhelmingly net-net positive. Uh, what's the fundamental, most significant difference that you think that this enabling moment, this digital biology moment, will produce in that 50 to 100 year time frame? So if we don't look at biology and life as a whole, you know, for example, if we just made it possible for all of us to live to 250 years, the policies, the way we do that now, we would overwhelm the planet and make it non-inhabitable by perhaps any of us. If we use this technology as we've been trying to do to uh, use sunlight uh, and CO2 as the carbon source and the energy source instead of uh, ancient biology buried deep in the earth that we pull out as coal and oil and burn it, you know, we can maybe increase the density, increase lifespan and do it in a much healthier way for us and, and the planet. So if we don't deal with it as a whole, we just change one part of it, uh, we're doomed. Um, I don't think any envisioned 100 years ago when we started switching from whale oil to oil coming out of the ground that it would be possible to change our own atmosphere by doing that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, I mean, you know, the Republicans of the day would really had a field day, you know, you know, looking 100 years ahead, it's hard to convince people now. Yes. Um, because it's, it's really not part of our nature to deal with preventing things that all of us only play kind of a passive and direct role on. So it really depends on how this plays out. If we use it, it could be, you know, the new industrial revolution. We can change all these processes, improve health and longevity, mm -hmm. uh, but it has to be in conjunction with everything else. That's why we're not just trying to change human lifespan. Right. Right. Um, so I think it's a giant experiment, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll be smart about it. Yeah. Okay.
We now have some time to take questions from the audience. There are two of us going around with microphones. Please raise your hand and wait for one of us to come to you. And if you could also please say your first and last name before your question. This event is being recorded. It'll be up on the SokoloPublicSquare.org website first thing tomorrow morning if you want to share with friends, family, colleagues who could not make it to tonight's program. Danielle's got the first question on your left. Hi, I'm Skylar St. Ledger, and I was wondering, let's say something goes wrong and they end up creating some very deadly, damaging bacteria or virus. What would we do to prevent that, and if that still happens, how could we stop that? No, it's a great question, and it's one that actually affects life every day, because something far riskier than that is life as we know it. Uh, we're far more in danger from new emerging infections than we are from somebody deliberately doing that. Um, Ebola, which was relatively easy con to contain, uh, is now getting out of hand in Africa because of the political situation that's happening on borders and, uh, and it's been very hard to contain. Uh, we've had uh, you know, the new H7N9 uh, flu virus uh, outbreaks in China uh, things spread uh, uh, very rapidly, but th the same technology uh, gives us some solutions. So we synthetically made a, a vaccine against H7N9. Uh, the U.S. government has now uh, started stockpiling this in very large amounts. So for the very first time in history, we have a vaccine against a deadly flu virus that's occurring in other parts of the world before we've had the first case in the US. So it shows that technology can be used in both directions, and that was a straight digital biological conversion. The Chinese sequenced the genome of the virus from a patient. They wouldn't send the virus uh, to the CDC or any place else. We downloaded it uh, from the cloud. We synthesized it in eight hours, and we were the only source that the CDC had for this, and now we've turned it into stockpiles of vaccines. The answer for biological warfare, emerging infections, it's having a range of antivirals, antimicrobials, and vaccines that can either be made very quickly or across the board. Um, it, you know, and the other, the other approaches are obviously political, it's just not having a, a, a system that tolerates it and a system where using the same technology, you can detect it very quickly and isolate it. So, um, Right now, we have huge centers that make vaccine uh, for flu. Um, with H1N1 a few years back, the vaccine was not available until after the pandemic had peaked. With the digital biological converter, we can actually send a new vaccine around the globe in a tiny fraction of a second. We can set it at the speed of light. Uh, and you can download the vaccine from your computer uh, and have it in your home without ever being exposed to the outside world. That's what the future is going to be. Uh, but in all warfare, um, it's always been a balance between who has the new weapon and who has the new anti-weapon. And that's how we proceed against disease agents. Uh, there are no vaccines against Ebola right now. Um, people are trying to rapidly develop them uh, because the social systems have failed to contain it when it should have been easily containable. So, great question. Next question on your right. Don Latham. Uh, I'm interested to see the different uh, companies coming up around longevity. You have yours. Uh, Google recently announced Calico. 
Uh, there's um, Aubrey de Grey has the SENS Foundation. Uh, can you compare and contrast the approach that you're taking uh, with maybe some of the other uh, approaches that are taking and compare and contrast or going after different parts of the pro problem? Uh, or how do you see those all working together? So uh, Calico is obviously a very serious play with uh, uh, people that developed Genentech and, and some of the first uh, biotech drugs that drove that whole industry. My understanding is they're taking primarily a pharmaceutical approach, trying to find things that, that do affect aging. As I said, we're not trying to solve aging per se, we're trying to solve all of biological issues, understanding our software so you can prevent diseases, and if you don't have the disease, you'll, you'll live longer. Um, uh, the other one, I, I, I don't even want to comment, it, it, it's not in the same serious category, but uh, you know, I, I think biology has gotten to the point where we can start to tackle some of these things that truly affect us. Um, and it's the quality of life, the quality of health, which is really the fundamental problem, not the actual number of years. Um, I, I think Larry Page told me if you eliminated all of cancer, you'd only change the average human lifespan by about three years. It's not lifespan, it's health span, the, the, the phrase some people start that, to use right. is that. Right? Um, but also it shows the absurdity of averages. Uh, because if you die from neuroblastoma at age uh, six months, uh, you know, versus somebody dying at 90, um, there are very different effects on individual lives. So um, I, I think it's exciting that we're in this new era and there's new focus on the broader view of human health and the definitions of it. Aging is not a disease, although it's the number one risk factor for every disease. <laughs> When my, when my father died of cancer, there were five risk factors for the cancer that he had, and the doctor told him he had 10. <laughs> Next question to your left. Hi, I'm Denise Baker. I'm a student here at ASU. Um, I think of, first of all, let me preface by saying I'm not anti-science. I'm really excited about all the, the, the stuff you're talking about. But I think of you um, as an architect of my future, and knowing that, um, my future is, is being engineered by someone whose ethics I don't know about. And I noticed that, I noticed that um, you put built-in um, little codex to the stop codex. And so it's something you thought about in the future. It's like, what, what could possibly happen? What could go wrong? So we don't want to, um, we put these in as, as uh, safeties. So when how do you make sure that other people are thinking about those types of ethics? You're thinking about our safety, our future, things that can go wrong. But when you, but when you put this information out there, how do you um, get the, um, the garage, sort of the people who are working in their garages doing synthetic biology? How do, you, how do you protect us from those people? And do you think that that's your job? Uh, it, it, it's a very thoughtful question, and I appreciate it. It's, um it, it's a challenge for everybody in society with any technology. Um, you can kill somebody with a hammer, you can build a hospital with a hammer. Uh, this has been a problem since the beginning of humanity. Uh, there's now a, the National Academy of Sciences has a terminology for it as dual use uh, technology. Um, 
you can have atomic bombs uh, to blow things up or you can uh, generate energy with them. And, and this is a true challenge of modern humanity. The way this has been done in, in biology is through setting regulations, primarily through the funding agencies. But there were reasonable regulations that everybody sort of agreed to and they made sense and they were part of the, the standard and ethics of your training when you got a, a PhD in science of some kind. Um, and it's worked remarkably well. There's probably been, you know, I don't even know how to estimate it, 50 million experiments that have been done putting genes from every known species into bacteria E. coli, into yeast and other things without ever having a single problem because there were some simple rules that were followed. The E. coli that we all use in the laboratory has a chemical dependency where it can't survive outside of the laboratory. So there was never a problem with escaping. Uh, you know, my worry, as I said earlier, with the DIY biology, if they don't learn the same ethics and the same rules, uh, might ignore some of these things. Um, the FBI is very concerned with that and is tracking it in case people use it deliberately to cause harm. It's the society norms that determine the limits of everybody. Um, you know, so uh, you, your, your parents had a lot more to do. Not only did they give you your DNA software, uh, but they gave you some of the nurture around that. Um, that probably has much more to do with your future than anything I could do to you or for you. Next question on your right. Hello, my name is Mark Latham. I'm at ASU as well. And I'm sorry to terrify everybody in the room, but I would love to be that scary garage guy. I would just love to get my hands in there and make my own bioluminescent garage. Now, with the ethics, ethics that will be coming forward, and let alone the ease of access, I was wondering, you mentioned specifically that, at least for now, you need proper training. You need to know specifically what your goal is, how, what your resources are. And of course, that's going to be changing dramatically, that price of entry. Where do I need to be? as a student? Where do I need to be focusing my talents and skills in order to really just have that garage where I could just inspire myself with what I can make for myself and those around me using synthetic biology mm -hmm. and just to spread the word this yeah. is happening? No, it, it, I think it's great that you're enthusiastic about it and there's obviously uh, one of the, the best things going uh, right now is young people are getting very excited about science, in fact, because of these new tools and people can relate because they grew up now in a digital world and the fact that the digital world and their biological world are becoming interconvertible, I think is an exciting concept for, for most people. I, I'm delighted to have you do bioluminescent studies in your garage, it would be very easy to find out where you are and track you. Uh, <laughs> And if you have, you're a fluorescent green, we can follow you anywhere. Um, it, it's, you know, it, 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 it's easy for people to learn the, the rules. The rules aren't that complicated. Uh, but, you know, in our facility at Synthetic Genomics, where we're testing some of these uh, variants that we're trying that's to use. That's the company, Synthetic That's Genomics. the company in La Jolla. Uh, we have a greenhouse that has a huge biocontainment system where we don't take these things and just put them down the drain where they end up in the Pacific Ocean or uh, you know, in, in a municipal water system. So th those are part of the training and, and the ethics and the regulations around doing this 
in a facility and an environment um, where those things are understood. So uh, I, I think it's great to experiment. You know, I built Heathkit radios and all kinds of things in my garage. Um, I've never felt the urge to design and make a species at home yet. I don't know why, <laughs> um, uh, it, it, other, other than through the natural method. Um, those are called venter kits. Those are called children years. or something, right? Uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, use that energy, use the creativity to find a, a place where you can do it and, you know, come up with an organism that can uh, uh, change uh, how we pollute the planet. Uh, you know, I, I think in, I embrace your enthusiasm, uh, do it in a way that's constructive for you and for society. We have time for just one more question. I know there were a couple of hands raised. Both of our guests tonight will be at the reception where everyone's invited. You can ask them further questions. And I want to take this time to thank both of them, Dr. Venter, Dr. Crow, for joining us tonight, sharing your evening with us, and all of you for showing up and making this a wonderful evening. And now our last question. Hello, I'm Krishna, I'm a grad student at ASU. So one of the arguments that was put forth against the synthetic bacteria that was created was that the blueprint or the DNA was actually available, it was part of another organism. So how, do you, how far do you, do you think are we away from synthetically creating our own genome from scratch, from a computer for instance? Your own, as in your own personal um, no, as in, modification? as in not using another organism's genome, so, but starting yeah. from scratch. Yeah, I, I think it's a totally a false argument because you know, we're relying on four billion years of evolution, but we've spent the last four years uh, with our team trying to design an organism from scratch to get down to the minimal operating system. And one of the reasons why that is not uh, uh, much more efficient and actually possible is we have a very limited understanding of fundamental biology. So in this organism, and, and uh, we've brought uh, uh, versions of it to life already, but we're still trying to make it more minimal, uh, at least 10% of the genes in this most basic organism of all life on, currently on this planet uh, are of unknown function. And so it's very hard to design things on first principles when all you know is if that gene's not there, you can't get life. If it is there, you can. Uh, and you can't, by the way, get a grant from the government to study that gene because you don't know what it is uh, other than it's essential for life which is why our knowledge of biology is still so limited. Uh, my late uncle was a designer at uh, Boeing of the 767, and he was at uh, my book signing up in Seattle uh, earlier uh, in the year, and I said, imagine if my uncle in designing uh, 767 didn't know what 10% of the parts did. And he shouted, what makes you think we knew? <laughs> uh, in fact, the airline industry was a trial and error industry, you know? You tried to fly, planes fell out of the air, you studied why they failed, and you fixed it uh, for the next iteration. Um, you know, we will have this minimal, you know, relatively minimal operating system that will be uh, not similar to any other organism other than some of its genes will be related. Uh, but it's more as an understanding and, and showing the complexities of design and even trying to get a simple organism that just self-replicates 
let alone one that does much more complicated uh, things. So uh, it, it's the state of knowledge of biology right now that you can't just sit down in your computer and design something, uh, synthesize the DNA, uh, boot it up, and get uh, a life form from it. Uh, the odds of that happening are close to zero. Um, and, and so it's a matter of uh, learning the design principles, being able to build on those, building on education, building on knowledge, hopefully finding a way where we can study the unknowns to make them knowns. Uh, because if we don't know what 10% in the simplest cell does, uh, imagine trying to understand all your genes uh, in your body. So um, we're close to the first one, but trying to sit down and design something that will uh, change fundamental manufacturing. All these are gonna be uh, largely the way biology has proceeded only at hypersonic speed. Uh, instead of taking billions of years with high throughput synthesis and the robotics we have, we can make thousands of versions and then screen for the one that's gonna live. Because until you can do it totally on empirical design, uh, we're going to need very high throughput and screening for the processes you want. Hopefully that got to what you were asking for. Thanks. With that, let's give them a big round of applause. We'll see you at the reception. Thank you. Thank you. That was good. That was good time. Thank you.